Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. So if you've maybe slipped in during the worship time, my name is Ryan, and uh, we're in the middle of a three-part series out of the book of Mark. We've been going through the book of Mark right through the beginning of the, from the beginning of this year, and we're in our, our last series for this year, actually. So this is, our, this is where we'll sort of call it uh, at Mark for now, pick it up again next year. But we're in a, the middle of a three-part series. Last week, Simon from Sutton School's work uh, started us off and looked at the feeding of the 5,000. And we've called this series The Miracles at the Lake because they all sort of revolve around this Sea of Galilee. And it's called a sea, but really it's just a, a massive, massive lake. And so on the shore, we have this amazing miracle of, of Jesus providing for all of these people who've come to hear his teaching. And he feeds 5,000 men, but we expect that there were more there, women and children as well. And then we have our story for this morning, which Kate has already touched on, the walking on the water and then after they've crossed over the lake, next week we'll hear about some of the miracles that happened on that shore as well. And so really, this is a, a miraculous lake. It's the kind of place you probably do want to go on vacation, um, and particularly if you're there with, with Jesus. And so we, we're looking at the story, and we want to look at these stories and go, well, what, what are these stories trying to tell us? And so a roadmap for this morning, where we're going. We're going to read through this passage together, take a few pit stops, note some things, and then really I want to ask what the main point is. What is the main point of this story? Why is it here? Why is it in Mark? And why are we reading it so many thousands of years later? What are we meant to get from this? Not, not what can we get from it, but what are we meant to? What, what did Mark want us to understand? What did God, when he inspired the author of this text, want us to understand when we read this story? This amazing miracle. You see, it's kind of like... When I, when I speak to young people or young adults about reading the Bible, it's kind of like getting a love letter. Right? I don't know if any of you have got love letters. I thought actually maybe for, for some of the younger people, it's kind of like getting a text from your crush. Right? You've got a text. And, and the question you ask when you're reading this text is, what do they mean? What, do they, what does this actually mean? You've got this letter and you're trying to understand what this important person is saying. And you really couldn't care less what you think it means. You want to know what do they mean? What are they actually saying in this text, in this letter? And so you study it and you read it and you, you talk to your friends and you go, what, what does she mean when she said this? What do they mean? What, what is this? How, how does this impact our relationship? What is the intended message? And so I think that's so important that as we approach the Bible, it's not always, in fact, it's very little about what do we think about it, but what did they intend to say? What did this person who loves us and cares for us and wants the best for us and has instructed us in this letter intend for us to get? And so we're going to read through the story together, take a few pit stops, and then really land in what is the main point of this story. But first, I, I do want to just highlight again that we're on a journey with Jesus. As we go through this gospel of Mark, I want to keep reminding us of why I think it's actually so important. One of the reasons I think it's so great to go through a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Every now and again, it's so important as a church to do this because the, the gospels are written from the perspectives of the apostles. They're literally on this road trip with Jesus. 
they're going along with him, learning his teachings, watching him do these miracles, participating, getting equipped. And we're now reading these stories, and it's almost like we're sitting in the back seat of the road trip. I don't know if any of you have been on road trips. We used to do one every year, and it was really amazing. But the best place to be is in the back seat where you can just relax and just observe and just look out the window. I don't know if any of you, when you were young, used to stick your hand out the window, and then you just do this with the wind. It's amazing. But you just to be, you've just to be observant and attentive as to what's happening. And so as we go through these stories, it's not just about the one story, but it's about the big picture. How does this all fit together? How does this all work? We need to be attentive to the whole route, not just the little moments and the highlights. And so let's pick up our journey after several chapters of Mark. And we pick up in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, and we'll go to the end. Immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and to go on ahead of him to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. This is, this is where I want to take a bit of a pit stop before we read the rest of the passage. You see, this is, this is sort of just setting the scene for us. Jesus has just done this miraculous feeding of the 5,000 that we heard about last week. He's called, um, he's done this amazing miracle. And straight after that, Mark really makes it clear. He says, immediately Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat and to go away. See, Jesus before the feeding of the 5,000, if you remember, had said, come away, let's go rest. Because he had noticed that his disciples had been doing all of this ministry, but hadn't had a chance to have any time to even eat. They hadn't had time to rest. And so Jesus tells them, get in the boat, let's go, and let's, let's go find a time to rest. But because their ministry was so successful, the crowd see Jesus and the disciples in the boat. And so they sort of beat them there. They beat them to the hotel. They sort of run ahead. And they're like, well, it's great that you want to rest and take a vacation. But we really want to see more miracles. We want to hear more teaching. We want to, and so they beat them there. And so Jesus has compassion on them. And the disciples are thinking, well, you promised us some rest. But I suppose, I suppose they're really hungry. And so Jesus continues to teach them. He has compassion on them. And then we have this amazing miracle where they come to him with five loaves and two fish, and he feeds the crowd miraculously. But notice then what he does next. Immediately, he sends the disciples back in the boat. He sends the disciples back in the boat. He says, you guys need your rest still. You guys still need your rest. You need to get away. And so he gets the disciples back in the boat to go ahead of him, and he dismisses the crowds. He's taught them, he's fed them, always a good combination, and he dismisses them. And then he himself retreats up a mountainside to pray. See, the question we need to, to ask is, where do we need to dismiss the crowd? You know, we, we need to learn to do that ourselves sometimes. Because life is complicated. Life is complex. And as we all know, life is very, very busy. And so sometimes we, we're called to sacrifice our rest. We're called to sacrifice our supper. We're called to sacrifice our leisure, and at times, it costs us, and we feel drained, and we feel weary, but Jesus values rest. He values time to just be, to recharge, because otherwise, we burn out. And also notice then Jesus himself takes that time. If you remember way back in, I think it was chapter 2, 3, or 4, that's a nice big chunk, sort of hedging my bets there. But Jesus did this already, 
And in fact, we notice a pattern here that almost every time we hear an instance of Jesus withdrawing to go pray, it's after an amazing time of ministry where the crowds have been massive. But Jesus got good at withdrawing. He got good at saying, okay, yes, this is great. This is exciting. It's getting busy. It's successful. It's entertaining. But I need to look after myself. I need to withdraw. I need to rest. And I need to find time to pray with my father. After these intense times of good ministry, Jesus would withdraw. And so he dismisses the crowd so he can take time to pray and so the disciples can get away to rest. That rest doesn't last very long as we will discover shortly. But the question I want to ask is where where do we need to dismiss the crowd in our lives? And it might not even necessarily be people. But whatever it is, whatever is in your life that might be robbing you of time to rest and robbing you of time to pray, We need to assess that and look at that and be good at saying, no, now it's actually time to dismiss that. I need to prioritize time for rest and I need to prioritize time for prayer. Littered throughout the stories of Jesus' miracles is Jesus taking time to rest and to pray. To rest and to pray. And I love the fact that even in this story, the instance is they needed to eat, right? Because we're not our best selves when we don't eat. We need to eat, we need to sleep, we need to rest, we need to pray, and then we need to engage. If we're all engaged, all ministry, all effort, all work, all of the time, we burn out. But if we go the other way, we can become very lazy. We need to find that balance of withdraw and engage. Rest and pray, but then engage again for ministry. So that's our pit stop, let's continue with chapter with verse 47 later that night the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land that's Jesus he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them shortly before dawn that's a long prayer session this is now sort of 3 a.m ish so Jesus has really been devoting some time to prayer shortly before the dawn he went out to them walking on the lake He was about to pass them by. That phrase has puzzled me for years. Absolutely puzzled me. Because Jesus sees the disciples and he sees them struggling. And that's quite clearly one of the reasons he steps out towards them. He says it sees them straining at the oars. And so he steps out and starts to walk on the lake. But then it says that his intention wasn't actually to go to them, but to go past them, which kind of doesn't seem very helpful. It's kind of like if you're straining at the oars and Jesus' intention was just to sort of pass you by and lap you, you sort of feel like that's a little bit of a bit of a knock to the the ego, really. It's kind of rude. This isn't very helpful. And so I I remember wrestling with that. Why is he going to just pass by them? Why was his intention to just do that? And and as I sort of studied this, I think the best explanation is that this phrase "pass by them" is actually parallel to an interesting story in Exodus where Moses is having an encounter with God and he's looking for an assurance of God's presence. He's looking for an assurance of God's provision. He's looking for an assurance that God will be with them. And so what God does is he says, I will pass you by and you will see my glory. I will pass by you and you will see my glory and you will know that I am the great Yahweh who will provide and protect you, whose presence will go out with you. And then we have the story of Israel triumphing and going through all of these amazing things. I think this is a a very 
hidden connection almost to that. Where Jesus is almost, his intention is not just to go straight to them and help them straight in their situation, but more to give them a display. A display of his glory, a display of his presence that would give them courage and comfort in what was otherwise a struggling time. And as we go through the story, I think that this sort of comes out a bit more clearly, but we'll figure that out as we go in. It just was always a puzzling phrase to me. Why is Jesus just going to lap them? Why would he not just go straight to them? But he catches their attention. And so in verse 49, it says, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him. And I like that because it, it means, you know, the one person's probably thinking, is this just me? Like, am I the only one seeing this? Did I eat too many berries? But no, they all, no, I see him as well. Yes, we're all seeing, okay, this is definitely someone on the lake and we're terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Again, not the most reassuring thing when someone's walking on the water and they says, don't be afraid, it's just me. I'm like, yes, but you're on the water. This is not normal. This is not, this is like, we're still a bit puzzled here. We're still a bit freaked out. But Jesus, he seems to expect them to take courage from that. He seems to expect them to go, okay, yes, this is Jesus walking on the lake. Instead, like most of us, I think they go, um, Jesus, you're walking on the lake. You're walking on the lake. So then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed or astounded for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now that's quite an interesting phrase and I think it's the key to the main reason we have this story See, Jesus now climbs into the boat. They think he's a ghost. He assures them, don't worry, I'm not a ghost. It's me. I'm walking on the water. Don't worry, I'm going to hop in the boat now. But they're amazed. They're astounded. They're, they're in shock. And there's this weird reason given for their shock. And it's not actually a positive reason. It's kind of a negative one. It says their hearts were hardened. Something was wrong. Something's lacking in them that's caused them to be shocked in a way that they shouldn't have been shocked. For they did not understand about the loaves. So something about the previous miracle is missing from their understanding. In other words, if they had understood the feeding of the 5,000 properly, if they'd got from that miracle what they would have meant to have, they wouldn't have been as shocked as they are. Does anyone else see how strange that is? That they need to understand the loaves, understand the bread. There's something in that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that would shape them and how they responded to Jesus in that moment. And so if you're like me and you're a little bit perplexed now, you're going, what is it? What are we missing? What's going on with this feeding of the 5,000, with these bread loaves that we're meant to get, which will shape the way that they understand Jesus walking on the water? It's such a peculiar connection. And I think the best way to understand it is to jump a few chapters later where we have the feeding of the 4,000 and the loaves come up again. It's quite an interesting thing. You can hear the shock in my voice. So we jump into Mark chapter 8 and we're going to read through this and notice some of the parallels and then try and solve this mystery in a way that I hope will encourage us. See, the, the feeding of the 4,000 had just happened. Jesus had done the same thing. There's 4,000 people this time and he feeds them again. And then the Pharisees come up to Jesus straight after that in an interesting little encounter. 
The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They love to do that. They asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply. I don't know if you've ever been asked a question that just makes you sigh. You know that sigh that I'm talking about? Where someone asks you something or says something, you just go, really? Really, you're going to ask that? I just told you why. I just explained this. Or you can't really be asking me this. This is what you almost get. It's such a strange thing. They ask him for a sign and Jesus just, and then he says, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Jesus says, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. The disciples discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Now, this is a bit of an interesting story. It's, it, it's actually kind of simple. Jesus has just had this encounter with the Pharisees. He then gets in the boat. The disciples don't quite have enough food. And then Jesus, out of the blue, says, now be careful of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees. Be careful of something that they're doing. And the disciples don't quite understand. And mo most of us are probably also going, we don't quite understand what's going on. Because Jesus often would speak in this kind of language. And they go, it's because we have no bread. Peter, I told you we should have got more bread. I, we just should have popped into the 24-7 and we would have got the bread. We would have jumped into Tesco's and Jesus wouldn't have then been telling us to be careful. But Jesus, aware of their discussion, asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Such a peculiar scenario. And yet we have our parallel. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Jesus says this is not about the bread. Forget the bread. We've got the bread. This is clearly not about the thing we can see. This is about something deeper, right? This is about something deeper. In fact, we touched on it in chapter 6. We touched on it in chapter 6 in the walking of the lake. And he says, don't you Remember, so what should they remember? Jesus tells us. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. Okay, cool. Let's give you another instance. And just now, when I broke the seven loaves for 4,000 people, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. Simple maths. We've got this. And he said to them, do you still not understand? And that's the end of that story. <laughs> and so here's, here's the best attempt, I think, of understanding what's going on here. See, I think these stories are really just about who we see when we see Jesus. See, if you think about it, if you think about this, this questioning, this line of questioning, how many loaves did we start with? How many people did we feed and what did we have left over? The amount left over in basketfuls greatly exceeded the amount they even started with after feeding thousands of people. So the simple question must be, well, what had to happen for that to be the case? In order to have the excess left over, what had to happen for that to 
be the case. Some more had to be created. Some more had to come into existence. It's not just that there was five loaves and at the end they had five loaves left. Jesus was breaking and as he's breaking, the pieces are staying the same. No, they had more left over than when they started. There was, there was a creation happening and Jesus says, this is pointing to who I am and you can't see it if your heart is hard. You will hear that and you will go, no, that just sounds, no. But if your heart is soft and you go, this is pointing to who Jesus is. He's the kind of person, God, Savior, who doesn't just provide, he creates. He's the same creator who created the whole world. He's the same sustainer who sustains all of existence. He not only fed thousands of people with minuscule portions, he created excess. He created excess. He produced it. I wish I had words to fully convey what that means for who Jesus is. But in the simplest of terms, it means Jesus is the creator God. He's not a mere man. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just the rabbi. And he's not even just a mere miracle worker. There were more of those. Jesus was God in the flesh, the creator of all things, including the loaves, and the one who could calm storms and was sovereign over the oceans. See, the journey for the disciples, this journey that we get to track on, that we've been going through in Mark, has been primarily a journey about who Jesus is. Mark started right in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is what this story is about. This is what this whole book is about. And the climax, spoiler alert, comes when the, the God at the cross looks up and says, surely this man was the son of God. All of these miracles pointed to it. Notice the Pharisees. This is the warning. The Pharisees with their hard heart had just witnessed Jesus doing these miracles and yet right after that they go, give us a sign. Give us a sign. You see, the problem is if the heart is hard, no matter how many signs you see, you will never believe. If the heart is hard, no matter how many signs you see, you will never believe. This is why this idea of understanding and seeing but not seeing, hearing but not hearing, comes up again earlier on in the parables. Do you remember in the parable, the parable of the sower where Jesus explains it and he talks about the purpose of parables? And in the parable he says, when I speak, when I sow, the hard path doesn't receive it. We need to look at our hearts and ask, are they hard to receiving the revelation of who Jesus really is and what that means for my life. What that means for my fears, what that means for my worries, what that means for my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, my goals. Jesus is Lord over the waves and over the loaves and he should surely be Lord over our lives. And so Kate in the children's slot mentioned the story of where Peter jumps out of the boat and walks on the water towards Jesus. It's actually not mentioned in Mark's account. Mark has a, a different intention in mind. He leaves that out. Maybe he just didn't like Peter. <laughs> but the idea is the same. Peter saw Jesus walking on the water, but he saw Jesus with a specific set of eyes. He saw Jesus 
as the Messiah, as God, as the one who controlled the waves. And when he started to doubt that, he started to sink. But when he believed that, he was able to walk on water. And so as we were encouraged earlier, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, but not just on Jesus as a baby or as a man or as a teacher, not just an encouragement or an example, but as God himself come to save us, come to lead us, come to love us. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.